Um, if you brought your Bibles, go ahead and pull those out and open up to 1 Peter from where Laura was reading. Uh, she was reading from chapter 2, starting in verse 4. That's where we're going to be today. Um, the, the letter that Peter wrote, 1 Peter, is almost all the way at the end of your Bible. So if you're flipping around, just flip towards the end, and you'll find it back there. It, it has a 1 in front of it. 1 Peter, when you get there, we're going to start in chapter 2. Um, if you're joining us for the first time or you've missed a week so far this year, let me catch you up to speed in this letter. Uh, Peter is writing this letter, and what he's doing in this letter, we've entitled this, this series, um, Christian in the City. Christian in the City. Peter has written a letter that was to be passed around to the churches in the cities in, in Asia Minor in the first century, which is modern-day Turkey. And he's writing this letter because there is this, uh, th- this reality that was happening for Christians. And this is a reality that, that Peter himself would have been very familiar with because he led the church in Jerusalem uh, after Jesus uh, died, was rose again, and then ascended. He, read the, or he, he led the church in Jerusalem for a couple decades. But then he uh, visited all the churches throughout Asia Minor, and he eventually came to be in Rome, and he's, he's writing this letter from Rome back to all the churches that he was visiting. And he noticed something, that to be a Christian was to be a minority in an urban setting back then. And, and so for us, uh, that's very relevant to us because to be a, a Christian, a disciple of Jesus in a modern-day progressive center means to be a minority in an urban setting. And so what we've been doing is we've been asking, what does Peter have to say for us? What does Peter have to say for us as, as Christians in the city? Because Peter is all about helping us be Christians in the city. It's, it's a, we've said it's a tension that, that, um, that many of us wrestle with. As we go out into the city, we ask the question, how do we be a Christian in this place? Sometimes the, the tension is opposite. We come into the church and we're like, well, how, how can I just be a normal person in the church? It seems to be that there are two different places, the, the, the church gathered community and then the city, and that these two are very different spheres, very different realms and Peter is all about helping us bring those two together. Now, the way that he does that is he does it by pointing to realities for, for Christians. He says there's this reality for you if you are a Christian. And he says it in, in chapter 1, verse 3. He says this is a reality that's happened to you. He says God has caused you to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And so he shares this reality. And then he shares what, what Dave called to be an ought. The is-is, the realities, often inform how we ought to respond to them in Scripture. But it's like that uh, throughout Scripture, but also just in our everyday life. Our realities shape what we do. Um, so, for example, um, it's sunny outside today. On, on days that it's sunny in my house, my wife bikes into work. Okay? That is a reality that is that informs what she does, okay? Our realities shape what we do. And, and with Scripture and with the realities that God is working into our life, Peter says, it's no different. And so the, the, the ought that follows the is of us being born again into a new living hope is, Peter says, to live a holy life. We got to unpack that together last week. And if you were here, I would strongly encourage you to go back and give that a listen. Uh, Pastor Dave really led us through how can we conceive of living a holy life. And he actually brought the scandal out of it, the fact that God says to us to be holy as he is holy is remarkable. The fact that he empowers us to be like him in that way is a huge scandal. And so if, if you missed it, go back and, and listen to it online. 
And today, what, we're, what Peter moves on in his, in, his, uh, in his argument and in his letter is he says, your desire, your living out that oughtness of you trying to be holy and live a holy life in the world, to, to, to model your conduct or your way of life after holiness, is going to lead to two more realities. And these, both of these realities are something that happens to you. They're things that happen to you. There's nothing you can do about them. They're just going to be realities that are going to be in your life. And so we're not going to do anything too fancy today. We're just going to unpack each one of these realities and how Peter encourages us to respond to them, kind of in the same, the same pattern, the is of the reality and how we should respond, okay? So we're just going to dive right into it, okay? That, that's enough intro. The first reality goes like this. Laura read it. We, we sung about it a little bit already this morning. It's, it's in verse 4. Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. The first reality I want to unpack with you guys today is that for those of us whom God has saved, and we would call ourselves Christians, and we're trying to live holy lives in the world, God is building us up, Peter tells us into a spiritual house, into a spiritual house. And as Laura read the letter, there's, there's more language like this in, in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. God is building us into a spiritual house. Peter has in mind a temple, a temple of sorts, but we can go even back further to get the essence of what the temple was all about in Israel. This is uh, from Exodus 19, when, when the Israelites came to the foot of Mount Sinai. They had just been saved out of Egypt by God's mighty hand, an outstretched arm, they said. They come to the base of Mount Sinai. They covenant together, and this is what God shows up and does. See if this language is familiar. Exodus 19 says, God says, out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So those are the descriptors that God used of Israel as they came to him, gathered at Mount Sinai. They're the same descriptors here that Peter's using. They're the very same ones. It's very intentional. What does this mean? Well, when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt... This is what it means. He looked at him and he said, I don't want to just relate to you as individuals. I don't want to just talk to you as individuals. I want to relate with you as a community. I want you to make vows to one another. That was part of this process of them coming before Sinai. I want, to make, I want you to make vows to one another. I want you to make promises to one another. The formal word is covenant. I want you to covenant to one another serve me and serve one another in community. This is what Mount Sinai represents. And when they did that, God came down on the mountain in smoke and in fire. In Exodus, it says that, that the ground trembled under the weight of his glory. Glory in the Bible is God's infinite weightiness, his greatness, his beauty, his very presence. He came down when the community covenanted together. So Peter's saying that if you've been called by God and saved by grace as an individual, great. That's awesome. But that's not all God wants to do with you. Peter says your new life in Christ makes you a living stone or a living brick. Your living brickness makes you different from the world. More on that in a few minutes, okay? But God wants to pick you up off the ground 
and put you with these other living bricks to lay you next to other living bricks, some below you, some on top of you, stay in the metaphor. He wants you to be covenanted together in the believing community. If you think about bricks actually take on responsibility for one another in a building, that's why Peter's using this analogy. Bricks support one another. A wall can only stand because each brick, you could say, is doing its job. And if you're willing to be covenanted together, God's going to build you into a spiritual house of a believing community where he's going to come down and dwell. It's still up to you. You can decide, you know, I'm going to let God put me in a spiritual house where I can make vows and promises to one another. Peter says, that's what God wants to do for, do for you if you've been born again into this living hope. Because when God's people covenant together, it's there that God's glory comes down to the church. Spiritual house. And Peter here has the audacity to say, the same glory that came down on Mount Sinai, the very, the very glory that would enter into the tabernacle as the, the Hebrews walk, walked through the, the wilderness, the same glory that ended up coming down into the temple of God, that same glory is coming into Christian communities as God is letting them, or as they are letting God build them into spiritual houses. That same glory is now available to the church. It's an audacious claim. If it's true, it's an amazing promise that the church is the dwelling place of the, of the glory of God. Now, if, if this reality that Peter is speaking is true, that the covenanted people of God is where God chooses to come down in his full glory, it, it must mean this. It must that the glory of God is available to you in the church in ways that it is not available to you otherwise. Or not available to me otherwise. Now, now, you might say, I thought God came down and, and dwelled in the hearts of each Christian. And yes, that, that's absolutely right. He does. Each person with faith in Jesus is a living stone. They are a living stone. But what Peter is saying, what this must mean, is that there's an extra weighty, glorious presence of God that inhabits his gathered people in a way that's different. That's different than God's indwelling of an individual. That means that in the church, you have access to the glory of God that's not otherwise available anywhere else or any way else. Now, the question is, is this true? Is this true? Well, I, I think it is, and part of us can just use common sense on some regards. Think about reading the Bible. Can you meet God? By reading your Bible? Absolutely you can. You can know more about God. You can have encounters with God through reading the scriptures on your own. But if you read the Bible in community, if you open up the scriptures in community, say in a cohort setting, the Bible is much more alive to you and God is much more alive to you. Think about worship. Can you worship God? Can you put on a playlist on Spotify of praise songs and worship God and experience God? Absolutely you can. God shows up in that moment to you. The spirit within you can even cry out. But how does that compare to worship corporately together on Sunday mornings? How does that compare when, when I, for example, worship with my wife? We're, we're, we're like both learning instruments right now. Well, she knows them all. I'm learning them all. You know, so we'll like try to sing some worship songs and she has a lot of patience with me. But, but even in those moments, we experience God showing up in a more significant ways. How about listening to sermons? I mean, you can listen to this via podcast, yet yeah, all of you are here. I don't want to be too prideful, but I, I would hope that you would say there's something formative that happens as, as we sit under the word as a community of God. 
Um, one of my favorite uh, pastors and preachers is a guy named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher in the 40s, 50s, and 60s in, in London. And that was right, and he was a, a, I mean, people loved his sermons. He was packing out huge auditoriums, thousands of people at a time. He'd go outside so they'd have enough room for people. And that was around the time when they had the technology to start recording things. And they said, hey, you're preaching these amazing sermons. Can we come in? Can we record these and then broadcast them over the radio? And he refused for a long time. He eventually gave in after a couple of years. But in his refusal, he could always go back to, he says, the sermon is a participation, not a product. The sermon is a participation, not a product. Now, some of you might, might do what us uh, human beings are tempted to always do when we come into a, a supernatural phenomenon. That's what we're talking about here. Nothing short of the supernatural phenomenon of God's glory coming down. And, and, and this is what humans do when confronted with it. And I do it too. I'm just, just as guilty of it. We try to explain the added experience of that, psych, uh, of that um, spiritual phenomenon psychologically. But Peter says that this isn't just a psychological reality. Ultimately, it's a theological reality. The glory of God inhabits his way in a people that isn't available anywhere else, anywhere else or in any other way. This is why Jesus said, wherever two or more are gathered, I'm there in their midst. This isn't just a nice fuzzy saying of Jesus. Jesus is pointing to a reality of living stones. Peter isn't just making this up from his own experience. He's not saying, we're experiencing this, so this must be happening. No, he was there when Jesus said that. And he's pointing Christians to remind them of that. The fundamental and experiential reality that God comes down when his people gather together. There's an extra portion of him present um, and so if you think you can grow just as much by, by listening to sermons or uh, online or being kind of a Christian on your own, reading books and Christian, Christian sermons, if you think you can grow just as fast as, as covenanting to a community, Peter would say you're wrong. You're, you're wrong. Now, don't get me wrong, you're not dead, okay? You're still a living stone doing that. But you're existing like a plant that's not getting all the sunlight it needs. The plant's not dead but it could be doing a lot, lot better. You see, available to us in, in, uh, is God, his glory in a way that's not available any other way. Re read Isaiah chapter six sometime. In Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah goes to the temple of God and he would likely uh, go to the temple almost every day with the, the people of God who would be there. Except one day, one day he went and God's glory came down powerfully. He describes this vision of, of God being on the throne and, and his, the train of his robe filling the temple space in his glory. Angels being there shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He experiences God's glory. He experienced it and he was changed. He was transformed. He was a different person from that point on. Isaiah chapter 6 is the transition of Isaiah. He was one kind of person before he went and experienced God's glory. He was a different person afterwards. You never know when God is going to break out. You never know that one day God broke out. Peter's saying that we are that temple, saying nothing short of that, where Isaiah himself experienced the glory of God. We are that temple. That's where God comes down. Okay, so two applications here, okay? First, the, the first application is show up. Really simple, show up. 
You can't experience the glory of God like this anywhere else, Peter says. Show up. And, and, and this is in a multitude of settings, okay? It's not just on Sunday mornings, okay? If you think about the bricks in the wall, maybe the whole building is the church, but you could even localize it to a local group. That's your cohort. Localize it to the, 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 the bricks on either side of you. Those are those crucial relationships where you guys are taking responsibility for one another, encouraging one another to grow. Show up. In, in, in those kind of three settings. Because when you miss out, you miss out. Um, Thomas, after Jesus um, was risen from the dead, he, he missed a meeting, a pretty important meeting. Jesus showed up to the 11 disciples at that point. And Thomas is just out on the side. He comes back, he's like, what happened? They're like, dude, God's glory came down. You missed it. But he eventually comes around to it, you know? But, but God's glory shows up. Last week, during the second set, the second song, Sydney, do you remember what that song was? Second set, second song? Uh, it was power, your, your Glory, that was the song. It was called Your Glory. God showed up. I wept like a child throughout that whole song. We left this place changed. Now, maybe not a huge life-altering change, but you get a, a bunch of little transformations. Maybe say you get 40 of them in a year. That could amount to a life-altering change. God showed up. He came down, and we experienced his glory. So the first application is show up. You can't experience the glory of God like this anywhere else. Um, the second application is covenant to the believing community because you can't experience the glory of God any way else, any way else this is where the secret sauce actually is, okay? This is what happens when you begin to attend a church that's made up of living stones that have covenanted to one another. You experience God coming down because you found a place where people haven't just decided to gather together, but because that's actually a place where they are taking responsibility for one another. They've made vows and they've made promises to one another to help each other grow. And that's the kind of community God comes down into. That's the one that God comes down into and changes them through. You might too be experiencing this life as entering into the community, but it's only, it was only ever available for you to enter into because there have been people. There are rows of bricks that have gone before you and have assumed responsibility for one another, and you're being able to, to stand on them to experience God coming down. We're standing on so many rows here at Sedaris. And I, I mean, I know our, our five-year anniversary is next week, actually, but I want to do something right now because we're standing on living stones that have been here for a while, and it's really fun because I see a couple in the back corner over here that were living stones from a long time ago that I think they're thinking about moving back to the city. But I want everybody to stand up. If you were part of the launch team, I want you to stand up. I want you to stand up as a living stone that was part of the launch team that was in 2014 before it kicked off in 2015. Yeah. Here they are. Back row launch team, come on. <laughs> stay standing, stay standing. 2015, where, where are the stones that joined in 2015? 2015, there are stones, yeah, front row, 2015. Come on. 16, 2016, yeah. 2017, 2017, yeah. 18. 18, oh, hey, there, there we go. 2019, 2019, uh, yeah. 
And then even this year, stand, I mean, this year, 2020, you guys come up too. Come on, everybody should be standing. Maria, Maria, I know you. Come on, come on, guys. Give each other a round of applause. This is a fun exercise. All right, so go ahead and sit back down. Go ahead and sit back down. But this is how living stones work. They build off of each other. And apparently, the longer you're here, the more you migrate that direction, okay? You're really like, yeah, I don't like that. That's okay, though. Uh, so the question comes to each of us, honestly. If you're newer, God wants to pick you up and has an expert bricklayer. He wants to put you on top of rows that have gone before you, maybe even plug some holes of, that were made as people moved away. God wants, as an expert bricklayer, to put you down into the, the community, okay? Uh, maybe you've been here for a while, and, and it's always good to evaluate if you're still showing up and if you're still covenanting in, e- in each one of those ways. Am I making it to Sundays? Am I making it to my cohort? It, are there people who are counting on me? Am I, am I holding responsibility for those two or three relationships, and they're, they're holding responsibility for me? Now, being locked into the temple, it's intimidating, Okay. But Peter tells us that it is the most sure and guaranteed path to life because that's where God's glory comes down into, okay? Um, I know we, we live in an anti-institutional age, I get that, but, but this is why we do family membership at Sedaris. That this isn't so that, that Dave and I can count people or we're on an ego trip or anything like that. We drive our family member pro- process so that people can make vows to one another, promises to one another, that are going to continue to bring God's glory into our midst. And that, that's why we do family membership here. And, and, and Peter, he, he wants to drive the point home for us. He wants to show us, hey, God had always, his plan was always to act as a master bricklayer, okay? He's always been doing that. And so he he quotes Isaiah 28 here in verse 6. He says, Peter says, For it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone and a precious, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The cornerstone is Christ. Peter called him a living stone at the beginning of chapter 4. A living stone. But it's not only a promise, it's the strategy. God is hoping to build temples out of people. Just like this building project that was announced in Isaiah 28. It's now being completed by us, the living stones of God, as we let him place us into community. How incredibly precious we must be. The people of God are that which mediate his coming to the earth. That's why Peter calls us a holy priesthood. How incredible is that? This is the gospel of Jesus. Uh, Perhaps you feel worthless. Perhaps you feel like you're not good enough to be part of God's people. The gospel says you are incredibly valuable. In fact, you are God's treasure. Why? Because you have the ability to create create a space where he can come down into this world and change it. You see that? Perhaps perhaps you're drifting and you wish you had more meaning and more purpose in life. Peter says you can be a living stone with the greatest purpose of of, of mediating God's presence into the world. This is something that's actually great about the charismatic church in history. The charismatic church has always been extremely focused on the presence of God, bringing it into the world. Sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll hear uh, slights on them that, that go like this. Uh, they're just after an experience. Who cares? 
Life is about experiencing God in this world. We have much to learn from our charismatic brothers and sisters. And, and I, I had a couple years in a Pentecostal church in my late college years. That's where I grew leaps and bounds because I was continually uh, encountering God's glory. And I know we've had a couple of our uh, more charismatic brothers and sisters start to attend uh, Sedaris Church in the last year, which makes me excited because there, there's no confusion that the glory of God manifest in the people of God is that which changes us and, and transforms us and is ultimately going to send us out in the world for, for mission. Um, but uh, perhaps you, had, you wish you had more meaningful relationships or were part of a vibrant co- community. The gospel says that you find vibrant community in the body. In the body. Relationships are only as vibrant as, as, much of, as so much as they carry responsibility for one another. This is how relationships work. It kind of pushes back against notions of freedom that we have, but we don't have meaningful relationships often because we're not making vows and promises, but the church makes those vows and promises that create incredibly meaningful relationships and people rejoice from them. Perhaps you wish you had more joy. Perhaps you love thrills. Honestly, the gospel says that by joining the church, you get the joy and the thrill of experiencing God come down from heaven. It's a thrill. This, this, this isn't boring, friends. And these living stones in the back corner, I mean, they, they could testify to five years of it now. This has not been a boring ride for them. Now, some of you might still be skeptical, so I have a story for you. Um, at the beginning of December, I uh, had surgery on my collarbone because I got in a mountain bike accident and had to get it repaired. And I was leaving um, from Harborview Hospital. And uh, Christy went to go get the car to drive it around, and my nurse was pushing me out, and she asked me what I did. I said, hey, I'm a pastor, and she was really happy, and I was like, I don't know what's going on right now. I just came out of anesthesia, and they pretty much just, like, shoved some pills in my mouth, spooned some applesauce in my mouth, and they're like, you'd rather be at home. So I was like, okay, you know, and she was really happy uh, that she was pushing a pastor down the hall, though. And so I said, are you a Christian? She said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. She was a Vitrian or... Ethiopian or Libya, I forget which one of those. Um, but um, she ended up sharing with me a hardship that she had in her life uh, with her daughter who was about 20 years old. And a huge rift in their relationship. And I felt God speaking to me in that moment. Um, even though I was loopy and still coming down off anesthesia, this is your sister in Christ. You have a responsibility to pray for her. And so I prayed for her, and I did terrible at it. Uh, <laughs> I could barely piece thoughts together, you know, but I prayed, and, and I looked up, and she was deeply, deeply moved. But why? Because God had brought two of his living stones together, and he had come down. Now, as I think on that, it was a huge turning point in my own walk as well. For months, I had slipped into just this, I mean, I was angry at God. I mean, when you get injured, you get angry at God, by the way. For anybody who's been angry at God or been injured, they know that. Um, you get angry at God. God, why did you allow me to crash my bike? Like, why? Come on. Uh, I was supposed to heal over the course of 12 weeks. You know, they said, oh, it'll heal on its own. They're, the doctors were perplexed when it didn't. So now I had to go back and get the surgery done and start my healing timeline all over again. But then it became all, all of a sudden clear. Maybe that's why God has let me go through that. Just so that he could come down in that moment amidst all of the homeless people in the lobby at the Harborview Hospital in a wheelchair. Maybe that's it. It was, it, it was incredible. 
When the people of God gather, they take responsibility for one another. He shows up and comes down. So that's the first reality, okay? That's the first reality. The second reality goes like this. Living stones are rejected by the world. Living stones are rejected by the world. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God. Um, this should be confusing to us. Peter is saying, you have been born again. Try to live holy lives. And then a reality flowing from that holy life that you're trying to live, a reality that comes is being rejected. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense at all. Why would you be rejected by others? Here's a, another experience that I have from telling someone I was a pastor. This was a while ago, maybe like six months ago. Um, I, Lucy is my daughter. She's in first grade at John Stanford, just a couple blocks away from here, and there was just a gathering of a lot of, uh, there's like something that the school is putting on, so all the parents from, were there just relating with one another, which is always really fun. And I was talking to a guy, and we were just jiving on all levels. Like, our personalities, personalities were bringing out the best in one another. We were joking. We were, had the same interests. We were talking about trips that we had coming planned. We were laughing. You know, and then he asked me what I did, and I said, oh, I'm a pastor. And, and his face fell from like, laughing and joking and, and joyful to just dismayed and confused and disappointed. And he, <laughs> and he said, that's interesting. That's interesting. That's interesting. He said it two more times still. And then he just turned around and walked away <laughs> to go to find, to find a conversation with somebody else. And I think you guys are laughing because you guys have had experiences like this too. Why would you be rejected if you're just trying to live a holy life in the city. Why does this happen? Well, in verse 7, Peter tries to help us wrap our heads around this. He says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So what's Peter saying? Well, Peter is saying here that there's another building project going on in the world. It's another building project. There's builders, and they're picking up stones, and they're trying to build things too. There's another building project. Peter says they came across Christ. This is a reference to Christ here. This is a psalm, Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They rejected Christ, but God picked Christ up, made him the most important part of his construction project. Why? Well, What's going on here is, is that there's two competing construction projects in the world. On the one hand, God has a construction project with his living stones that he is putting together in order to reveal his glory into the, the world. And mankind's involved with another construction project, or there's, there's probably many, many, many of them, which is self-glorification. The world's construction project is to use other people to glorify the self. When you think of all the construction projects, it's not really that much of a leap to think about this. Think about shrines and monuments built to glorify men and women, nations and states, movements and causes. It extends beyond the physical into the institutional, ideologies, political parties, corporations. There's so many things that want to take you as a brick and put it in their institution for their glory. But to be a follower of God, to be born again into a living hope, means to be about God's glory project. And that actually makes you useless to the other glory projects going on in the world. 
Now, it doesn't mean you quit your job. Don't hear me wrong. I mean, Jeff Bezos can still use you, you know, to get, to get me my book in less than 24 hours. It's great, you know? I love it. So many Amazon employees here. Love it. You know, it doesn't mean you quit your job. But there is this tendency that the, the, the leaders of this world are up to their own construction projects, and they want to take you as a brick to use you for their ends. Jesus encountered it when he showed up on the scene. Showed up on the scene, the Pharisees want to use him for their construction project to make the people righteous again. He's like, I'm not all about that. Hold on. Sadducees want to use him towards their end as well. The zealots do. If you read, just read through the, the four Gospels and see what everybody wanted to do with Jesus. Sometimes we always are looking at what Jesus is trying to do. But what people are trying to do with Jesus is very, very, very interesting. And this is what Peter is saying to a group of, a minority group of Christians in Asia Minor. This is what he's saying to us. That men and women who are bent on their own glorification, they can't ruin God's purposes. If you reject him, you will make a mistake, yes, and, and you'll stumble and you, you will fall. But God picked Jesus up. He put him right where he needed to be. They might arrest him. They, they might take Jesus. They might put a bag over his head. They might beat him. They might, they might uh, strip him, tie him up to a pole, and flog him. They might march him up a, a, a hill naked. They might put two pieces of wood down. They might nail him to those two pieces of wood. They might put him up as he suffocated to death, ridiculing him while it, while it happened. They might kill him. They might throw him in a cave. Get him out of here. We don't need him. He's in the way of our glorification project. But Three days later, God says, nope, he is the cornerstone of my building project, and I am going to use him towards my plan for him. So, he's, so Peter's trying to tell us something here. He's saying, for you and me, don't worry about it coming out, that you have a deep commitment to a Christian community. Don't worry about your rejection. They, your friends... Your coworkers, your acquaintances, they, they might refuse to speak to you. They might exclude you from areas of influence. You might not get that promotion. Your landlord might not want to continue your lease. Those are very real effects that might come. But you know what? God is going to end up putting you in his construction project exactly where he wants you, no matter what. How do we know? Because we saw him do it with Christ. The resurrection is the promise that God always fulfills his purposes with his people, including you and me. Your ultimate resting place will be in the most important building there ever was, the temple, with the most important task to ever do, to make space for and invite the life-changing, joy-bringing, heavy glory of God to come down and change us all. This is how treasured we are by God. You are his precious people. Verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. This is strange what we're doing here today. Peter's saying that your commitment to the, the believing community, that that itself is a public proclamation to people. Sometimes we can get nervous about talking to our friends about Jesus. There's actually an easier step that Peter's telling us is here. Talk to your friends about the life you're experiencing 
in Jesus' community. I went to church this Sunday. It was great. I had a great one-on-one with my friend. I went to that, that group, and I'm really learning a lot right now. You see, that, that, that is actually public proclamation of what God is up to, of his glory coming into the earth, similar to how he came in Christ. Now, you can also talk about Christ in the world. That's not, Peter's not outlawing you from that. But what he is pointing to is, you know what? Perhaps there's an easier thing to do here. Just talk about the life that you're experiencing in the believing community. <clears throat> now, what is our, our disposition supposed to be towards those who reject us? That's why Peter continues in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a quote from Amos chapter 2. Sorry, Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. The prophet Hosea has a very interesting uh, story. Probably the most interesting story of any prophet in Israel. God tells uh, Hosea to, to marry a woman that he knows will not be faithful to him. This woman bears him children that are not his first child is born, and he names this child Lo Amni, which is not mine, not my people. Second child is, is, is born, and, and God says, name it not, not loved. Eventually, this woman uh, runs away with one of her lovers, and this lover treats her so poorly. Um, he, he abuses her and sells her into slavery. And then God comes to Hosea and says, go buy her back. Go love your wife again. And the only thing that, that we see Hosea saying, he says, and so I bought her. So I bought her. For Peter to take that verse and put it here means that he believes, and he's right, that Jesus Christ came to earth into a marketplace of this world. And though we had rejected him, though we had spurned him, he, brought us, he bought us not with money, but with his blood to make us his own. Peter's reminding us that we too once rejected Christ. We too once rejected Christ. We too once rejected perhaps even people of Christ. The Spirit brought to mind, there's a person of Christ, my college experience, who he was just so intense about my self-glorification projects. I did not like this person. We too did this. That changes everything about our disposition towards those who reject us. Okay? Everything. It changes everything. You might even pray for them. You you have great empathy for these people. You, You might even love them. Isn't that what Jesus said? Love your enemies? How would you love them? Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. There's that word conduct again, or way of life. Keep your way of life among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Your evangelism is your life is what Peter's saying. When people who reject you uh, get together and they might, they might slander you, is what he's saying, they might speak of you of evildoers, they might come and think, hold up a sec, why am I saying bad things about Laura? She, she lives a pretty good conduct of life. There's an evangelism here that's there. This is a public witness and a public testimony. 
Now, for, for some of you, you might have uh, recognized some of the language that we're bumping into here. God is saying, I've chosen you as a people. Uh, at the end of verse uh, 8, it says that they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But Peter doesn't have in mind a, a past point in time where God chose some people and didn't choose some people, and this is all working itself out as a result. How do we know? Because Peter is saying that your actions are going to play a part in the salvation of your friends who don't know Jesus. That's what he's saying in verse 11. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God who is in heaven. So it must mean something else. We don't have time to unpack that today. But what I want us to, to, to leave with today is if it's true that you have been born again, and if it's true that you're called to live a holy life, it's going to lead to these two new realities for you. One, that God wants to pick you up as the living stone and put you into a house, put you into a spiritual house, a temple, so that you can bring the glory of God into the, wor into the world, a glory that's not available anywhere else. It's not available any way else. And two, you will be rejected by men. But you too once rejected Christ. You too perhaps once even rejected the people of Christ. And so it is in your empathy and in your love that you press into your, uh, your, your way of life. You continue to live a holy life so that they might be convinced that this is the next step for them to check out Jesus and this gospel message. And that way you make Jesus unignorable in our city. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as, as living stones now, as living stones asking you if you might put us in a place, a building, that we could experience your glory. I, I pray for, for all my friends who are here today that would say, I am a living stone. Would, would you show them what their, their next step of action is, whether it be taking responsibility in the community to love one another, to, to show, uh, to continue living holy lives in the world, to show empathy and compassion on those who have rejected them. Radical empathy and compassion. To cry out even with, with Stephen towards the men who stoned them. Forgive them, Father. They do not know what they do. God, I pray for uh, my friends who are here today that would say, you know what, I don't think I'm a living stone yet. God, I, I pray that you would continue to bring them into the midst of other living stones that they might catch a glimpse of your glory. We know that you brought them here for a reason, and so we pray that you would reveal yourself to them, reveal Jesus to them, reveal your gospel to them now, uh, both in, in, in this worship to follow and, and through their friends who brought them. We, um, we, we, we praise you and we love you. What a crazy plan that you have designed to use your church to bring your glory into the world, and we just ask that we would respond faithfully to your plan and to your building project. Amen.